special treat here this morning. Uh, we get to hear uh, from Jonathan Keenan, who those of you who have been around Memphis for a little while will remember as the old RUF campus minister at uh, Memphis. Since then, I guess, is it three years ago? Three years ago, he, uh, the Lord placed a call on, on he and, and his wife Morgan's life to, to move all the way out to California where they've been. Uh, where Jonathan's been the campus minister of the RUF chapter um, at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and so he is uh, here for a short little trip to visit family. And so I, I saw his name and, and snatched him up to come hear from him uh, the Lord's word. So Jonathan, if you would come on up and, and let's give him a, a welcome as he comes to bring God's word to us. Well, good morning, Redeemer. You can have your water. It is good to be with you. Good to see many of you. Um, a lot of familiar faces, a lot of faces that I don't recognize, um, partly because I am the old campus minister from Memphis and entered 40 and had to get glasses, so um, I can't see some of you right now. So for those of you who I, I, I do see and remember, it is good to be with you. I want to give, before we jump into our passage that's printed for you in the bulletin, um, Ben asked me to give maybe just a little bit of a highlight or, or talk a little bit about the work out in California. And um, I, I've been there for three years at UCSB. We live in Santa Barbara, which is a terrible place to live. For those of you who know Santa Barbara, it's paradise. And um, but UCSB is a very unique campus. Um, it, it's um, it ranks as a top ten public university in the country. Uh, very academically driven, but it sits right on the ocean. And so most of of the students that I interact with before class, they go surf, uh, or they ride their skateboards. Um, it's a big biking culture. And um, last night, I was with some friends, and, and someone asked me, they said, what's the difference between ministering at UCSB as opposed to the University of Memphis? Um, and, and I was a, a student at Ole Miss, and this is, it's very similar in, in what I'm about to say, but I, I told this guy yesterday, I said, you know, when I was at Ole Miss and when I was at the University of Memphis, when you would talk with students kind of about where they were spiritually, oftentimes they had a category for guilt, especially churched kids who maybe landed on a college campus and began to experience freedom for the first time. And some of the choices they perhaps made led to decisions that led to guilt. And they felt it. They experienced real guilt for maybe some lack of moral you know, choices that they made. That was a, a very real experience when I was at Ole Miss. Um, I mean, I felt the guilt when I was arrested for driving under the influence as a sophomore in college. And that was a real experience when I pastored students at the University of Memphis. Out in California, it's a little bit different um, because it's not so much that students don't experience guilt, but the narrative that they've been told is that true freedom is freedom without restraints. And so the students that I interact with Oftentimes, when they are on a particular trajectory that isn't satisfying their souls, it's not that they feel guilt. 
they lack a satisfaction with the choices that they've made. And to highlight what I mean by that is I met with a student one time. This is probably my second year there. She was a female student. We met for lunch. It was our first one-on-one, and she arrived hungover, and she quite, you know, frankly just told me, she's like, I'm sorry that if I'm not all here, I was out late last night doing all kinds of things. And we sat and we talked for over an hour, and I got her story, and she told me that she came to college to literally uh, experience all that she could, freedom without restraints. And I asked her, I said, how's that going for you? And I'll never forget what she said. And she was so articulate, um, and she was so in tune with the choices that she was making. She said this. She says, I know the trajectory that I'm on and the choices that I'm making and the things that I'm doing with my body, things that I'm injecting or the things that I'm just physically doing with someone else. These choices that I'm making are, are leading me to a place where it's dehumanizing me. It wasn't guilt, but she realized that the narrative, her worldview, that she had been grown up, she'd grown up with being fed, was leading to a place where it was leading to where she wasn't going to be human anymore. And I thought that's a really great picture of what it looks like to minister at UCSB, where students who Majority of them don't grow up around the church. They have little categories for Christianity or what they understand about Christianity comes from maybe what they see on the news. And so it's not so much dealing with guilt as it is with trying to capture a better picture for what a life that can flourish in this world looks like. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God. And how God's design for humans to really flourish and to find great joy is a different narrative than the one that perhaps the world offers. And so that's a a little bit of a glimpse of what it looks like to minister um, at UCSB. But I do want to give just kind of one really wonderful story that happened this spring. I... I had the opportunity to uh, meet with a student, a guy named Jacob. Jacob had, we meet on Wednesday nights on campus, and for six months, Jacob walked through campus, showed up to where our large group met, and never walked in. Until, I think it was the start of the winter quarter, first start of the winter quarter, which was early January, he finally had the courage to walk through the doors Walked in, I immediately met him, uh, introduced him to some of our guys. He sat down. Uh, we were going through the life of Ruth. And um, after I preached, went up to him afterwards and said, Hey, I would love to grab lunch, breakfast, whatever, get to know you. And he was like, Absolutely. So we sat down, and from then on, for about six weeks, we began to work through all of his questions that he had. He came with, As a pastor, this is really awesome when someone comes with questions. So it makes my job very easy. He had a whole list of questions. And each week, we would deal with one of them. I get emotional talking about it because at the end of winter quarter, um, Jacob, who was a senior, um, finally came to know the Lord. 
and it was a beautiful picture of him wrestling with his own story in light of God's story. And in April, I got to baptize him, and he joined Christ Presbyterian Church in Santa Barbara. And because of his experience in RUF and interacting with the students that he's, he's interacted with and he's found community, he's decided to kind of forego his plan, and he's going to stay in Santa Barbara just to grow in his Christian faith to be surrounded by believers. And he doesn't know what he's going to do, but he knows that he wants to stay because he needs the community. And so it is a joy and a privilege that I get to do what I do, especially where I get to do it. And I want you to know as a church, um, you, many of you, uh, have supported the work of RUF, and some of you actually support me personally, and I want you to know that you, specifically Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Midtown Memphis, are reaching students for Jesus on the West Coast. Like you literally are the hands and feet of Jesus on the West Coast, and I often tell students who've been a part of our ministry, I'll say, you know there are churches back in the South, churches like Redeemer, who actually support the work that we do. And these are people that you will probably never meet until heaven. And they look at me and they're like, what? People in Memphis support RUF at UC? And I'm like, yes. And so when Ben asked me to preach, I was thrilled mainly um, so that I could say thank you. Thank you for being a church that supports RUF, our denomination's campus ministry. Thank you for supporting me and my wife over the many years. And um, it's, it really is a joy for me to stand here and to tell you just how much we appreciate you. So to that end, will you turn with me to the passage that's printed to you for you in the bulletin? We're going to look at John chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. John chapter 11. Before I read, I, a former campus minister in RUF um, tells a story about one of his friends. Uh, his friend was named Tom. Tom was a former army ranger who, when he got out of the military, actually became a Christian. And he began to wrestle with whether or not he should go into kind of vocational ministry, kind of trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life after having served uh, as an army ranger. And he ended up at a, at a Christian conference. And at this particular Christian conference, there were different booths out in kind of the, you know, the main exhibit hall that were promoting their different ministries. And so one morning, Tom's walking kind of through the foyer, and he's kind of looking around, seeing the different booths, different ministries, and he comes across a particular booth that was a ministry um, pertaining to the civil rights. And Tom was drawn into a particular picture that was up on one of the tables promoting the ministry. And it was a, it was a picture of an African-American girl, a young girl, bound in chains, who was a slave. And Tom, this former army ranger, standing in the middle of this exhibit hall at a Christian conference, just begins to weep. 
I mean, he, he wasn't the type of person that would normally cry, especially not in public at a place like this. But this picture just captivated him so much that he began to think about this world and how broken, how much evil, how much injustice, how much oppression, just how much heartache exists. And it just moved him to tears. And there was an African-American woman that was kind of manning the booth. She, she stood up. She walked out over to Tom. She grabbed his head. She drove it into her shoulder. And this is what she said. She says, I know. It ain't supposed to be this way. And Tom just began to weep even more. And then she says, Honey, it's okay. Because Jesus is going to make it all right. It ain't supposed to be that way. I know in a room this size, everyone on some level has either uttered those words verbally or it's been the ache of their soul at one point. When you look at it from a cosmic level or from a global scale, and you see all that is happening around the world, it ain't supposed to be this way. Or from a personal level, when you receive news that is just utterly devastating, whether it has to deal with you personally, or from a family member, or from a friend, and the only thing that you can muster is it ain't supposed to be this way. Because this world that we live in, it's cursed, it's fallen, it's full of heartache and sorrow, and sadness, and grief, and pain. And there's a temptation that when you're confronted with the brokenness and fallenness and cursedness of this world, when grief enters in to your soul, when sorrow enters in, there's a temptation to, on the one hand, to avoid the grief, or to grieve as those who have no hope. You can either avoid the grief by not entering into the sadness and by just tacking on spiritual platitudes, right? We as Christians are very good at this, especially when someone in our own circles are going through things that we don't want to enter in, and so we tack on just spiritual platitudes. So we can avoid the grief or... We can grieve as those who have no hope. Who don't believe that Jesus is the one who can make it all right. In the passage that we're going to consider this morning, what I want you to see as we read is that Jesus, 
as he discovers that his good friend Lazarus is ill and dies. He does not avoid the grief, nor does Jesus grieve as one who has no hope because Jesus knows that it ain't supposed to be this way. My prayer for us this morning is that we might be a people who grieve with our hope anchored. Anchored in the one who will make it all right. So to that end, give your attention to John chapter 11, beginning in verse 5, and then we'll jump down to verse 17. my glasses. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Grass withers and the flowers fade. And with these words of our God, we'll stand forever. Let's pray before we consider it this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now and we appeal to your goodness and your grace and your steadfast love that as we consider this remarkable story, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe the good news. Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As you can tell from the story, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were dear friends of Jesus. They're throughout the Gospels, and and in particular, throughout John's Gospel. They were dear friends of Jesus. And when Jesus, he's with his disciples when he receives the news that Lazarus is ill, and then he dies. And so what I want to do this morning as we consider this, this wonderful narrative, I want to look at two things. I want to look at how Jesus walks into the sorrow and then how Jesus weeps with the sorrowful. Two things, Jesus walks into the sorrow and then Jesus weeps with the sorrowful. First, Jesus walks into the sorrow. We didn't read this part, but the disciples were worried that if Jesus goes back to Judea, the Jews there We're going to kill him. Because the last time Jesus was in Judea, the Jews tried to stone him. And so Jesus finds out that his good friend Lazarus is dying. And his disciples look and say, Jesus, you can't go. It's too dangerous. There are people there that want to kill you. And Jesus is undeterred by the threat of his own life. 
because he goes to his good friend, Martha and Mary, to be with them in the midst of their sorrow and grief. Jesus doesn't let the threat of his own life deter him from walking into the sorrow. And when Jesus walks into the sorrow, he comes with three things. Three things that I want you to see from this passage. He comes with truth, he comes with love, and he comes with wisdom. The first thing that we see when he walks into the sorrow, he comes with truth. Verse 6 is so perplexing. Jesus knew that Lazarus was ill, and yet we read that he decided to stay two more days with his disciples where they were. Why on earth would Jesus stay two more days when he knows that Lazarus is dying? And did you catch the Jews even hinted at this? This man who can cause the blind men to see, could he not have prevented this man from dying? Verse 6 is so perplexing. And this raises all kinds of questions related to God's purpose behind sorrow and suffering. Do you notice how Martha and Mary respond to Jesus the exact same way? Jesus, if he would have been here, our brother would not have died. Why did Jesus wait? Why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? Why does Jesus allow us to walk in the midst of sorrow and grief? Now, we don't have time this morning to, to give a full-orbed biblical theology of, of suffering. But those are great questions to entertain in your community groups, if they're still running the summer. Or to just entertain amongst yourselves and in your own community. But as Jesus walks into the sorrow, he comes with this truth. That he is completely sovereign and in control over the sorrow, the pain, the suffering, even death in this world. Utterly sovereign and in control. And we learn that there actually is a particular purpose from this particular story. Did you notice in our passage, Jesus says at least two reasons why he waited. So that the Father and the Son would be glorified, and so that those who would witness what Jesus would do would believe in the Son of Man. In verse 4 we read, and in verse 42 we read, there are particular purposes from this particular story for why Jesus allows Lazarus to die. Now this is hard for us to understand because of the conflicting desires we all feel when we walk in the midst of sorrow. But if Jesus is not in control of our pain, or our sorrow, or our grief, or the things that we interact with in this broken and fallen world, then it's meaningless. And if it's meaningless, Jesus knows then that our suffering will be unbearable. And so Jesus, as he walks into the sorrow, he comes with the truth that he is over all of it. But it's not enough that Jesus is just sovereign over our suffering and sorrow. It's not enough that Jesus is just in control. Jesus comes with the truth that he's sovereign, but he also comes with the reality that he's love. Verse 5 
John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. When Jesus stands over the tomb and weeps, did you notice what the Jews who were standing around said about Jesus as he's weeping? Look how he loved him. What I want us to understand and believe this morning is that Jesus' sovereignty, his sovereign arm is never detached. His sovereignty is never detached from his loving kindness. Tim Keller in his book on suffering says, suffering is unbearable if you aren't convinced, if you are not certain that God is with you and God is for you in the midst of your suffering. And what John is giving us a picture of is that God in the flesh walks into the sorrow at the risk of his own life to demonstrate not just his sovereign power, but because he loves his friends. Always attached to God's sovereign arm is his loving hand. You see, it's not enough for us just to believe the truth that God is sovereign. You have to know that his love is with you in the midst of it. So Jesus walks into the sorrow with truth, comes with his love, but he also comes with wisdom. I love this. Did you notice how Jesus responds differently to both Martha and to Mary? He does not rebuke their accusations. They both come to Jesus and say, if you would have been here, none of this would be happening. He doesn't rebuke them, but he deals with them differently. In other words, Jesus meets Martha and Mary where they are in the midst of their sorrow. Notice how he meets with Martha. Martha needed words of comfort, words of assurance, words of hope. Verses 23 and 25, he says, Martha, he will rise again. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha there says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. See, Jesus comes knowing that Martha needed words of assurance, words of comfort. But when he's confronted by Mary, who says the exact same thing to Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He sees her weeping. And all Jesus can do is look at her weeping and the Jews around weeping and say, Where have you, lady? Take me to my friend so that I can weep with you. You see, Mary needed Jesus' tears. She needed his compassion. She needed his tenderness. She needed his empathy. Jesus walks into our sorrow with wisdom. In other words, what we learn is that Jesus will meet you where you are in the midst of your sorrow. 
He walks into this broken, cursed world as Emmanuel, God with us. And he comes with words of comfort, with tears of grief, and with actions of love. Because that's who Jesus is. I don't know if you ever saw the um, Canadian insurance commercial. Probably not. Who watches Canadian TV, right? It's a commercial that starts out with a group of boys, probably eight, nine, ten years old. And they're in between two houses that share kind of a, a driveway with a basketball goal. And the boys are playing basketball. And at one point, the, the ball kind of rolls out towards the street. And uh, one of the boys runs out. And as he picks up the ball, he looks over. And on the front porch of one of these houses, you could tell that a new family has just moved in. There's a boy sitting on the front porch, and he's in a wheelchair. And the boy picks up the basketball, looks at the boy on the wheelchair, and kind of nods, runs back to the basketball game. And the little boy on the, on the front porch in the wheelchair kind of goes back inside. And it fades to black, and then you see that it's the next day. And there's a basketball on the front porch of the little boy's house in the wheelchair. And the little boy sees it, and he rolls himself out, picks up the basketball goes down in between the driveway and he looks out and he sees all these boys playing basketball. But all the boys are in makeshift wheelchairs. And the boy that saw him the day before looks at him and says, Hey, come on. Kind of makes you want to go out and buy insurance, right? <laughs> I thought, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing in this passage. Where Jesus will meet you in whatever condition that you are in, in whatever place you find yourself in this cursed, fallen, broken world. He will meet you where you are. With truth, with love, and with his wisdom. Jesus is modeling for us something beautiful as he teaches us how we should walk into the midst of one another's sorrow. Because you see, tears without, um, truth without tears lacks love, and tears without truth lacks hope, and we need both. And that's what Jesus is actually providing for us here. Jesus, as the Son of Man, comes and he whispers to us that everything will be okay. How do we know that? Because Jesus not only walks into the sorrow, but he weeps with the sorrowful. How do we know everything will be okay? Because Jesus weeps with the sorrowful. What's so fascinating about this passage is that Jesus knew what he was going to do before he actually arrived. And yet we read in verse 35 that Jesus, he didn't just weep. It literally says that he sobbed. So why is Jesus weeping with the sorrowful? There's two reasons that I want you to see. Jesus is weeping with the sorrowful because he's angry and because he's afraid. He's weeping because he's angry Look again at verse 33. It says that Jesus was deeply moved 
in his spirit. The Greek there literally says he was snorting with rage. Why on earth is Jesus snorting with rage? Why is he so angry? It's because Jesus knows that this world that he created, that this world that he loves is broken and full of all kinds of evil and justice, and it makes him angry. He's quaking with rage when he looks out and sees how broken this world is. He's upset. When I was in seminary, one of the things that we had to do that nobody really wanted to do, but it was part of our requirement, was that we had to do two um, stints at the hospital as a chaplain. So you had two 24-hour shifts. And I'll never forget my first 24-hour shift. You walk into, I, I went to RTS in Charlotte, so I was at a Presbyterian hospital in, in Charlotte that had a relationship with the seminaries. And so I walk in, and here the protocol was you go to your room, they give you a pager, like an actual pager. And you sit in your room with a, a bed and a TV, and you just wait for the pager to go off. That sits next to the phone, and you call the nursing station, and they'll tell you where you're needed. And so I tried to watch TV, but I just stared at that pager, praying that it would not go off. <laughs> yes, I'm that kind of pastor. I, I wanted to avoid all kinds of things. And it, sure enough, about an hour in, it goes off. I call the nursing station, and they tell me that on... The fifth floor in the, in the operating waiting room is a family who um, the man's on the operating table um, is not doing well, and they've requested the chaplain to come and pray for them. So take my little pocket Bible, go up. I'm wearing a name tag that says chaplain. Get out of the elevator, walk into the waiting room, and it's an African-American family, and it's all their extended family. There's probably 25, 30 people in this room, and I walk in, and I'm greeted by a young lady, and it's her dad that's on the operating table. And she takes me by the hand. She sees that I'm the chaplain. She takes me by the hand. She walks me over to the grandmother. Um, it's her, the grandmother, it's her son that's on the operating table, and she's in a wheelchair sitting in the middle of this room. And I walk over, and I grab her hand, tell her who I am, that I'm here to read and pray with her. And she, as the matriarch of the whole family, just summons the room. And they all just descend around her and me. And I kneel and I, I read and I, I don't even know what I read. I prayed. And, and you would have thought a revival was going to break out. I was sure that Jesus was going to save this man. And I stepped back and kind of waited around for about 20, 30 minutes. And all of a sudden a doctor and a couple of nurses walked in. And you could tell by their posture that the news was not good. And they went up to the, the grandmother and told her that the man, her son, the father, the uncle, the best friend, had died on the operating table. And I wasn't prepared for what happened next. The grandmother just began to scream. The man's brothers that were there became visibly angry and began to take out their rage on the wall and on machines in the waiting room. 
And I kind of stood back, and I remember thinking this as a young seminarian, like, I don't know how appropriate this is. But the longer that I've done pastoral ministry, their response to the news of the death of their son, of their father, of their uncle, of their best friend was more Christ-like than mine. They were angry that death had taken someone that they loved. Jesus is angry at death and sin because it's ruined this world that he loves. He's quaking with rage. He weeps with the sorrowful because he's angry, but he's also afraid. Look again at verse 33. It says that he's deeply moved and greatly troubled, which literally means he's stirring with fear and terror. Deep within Jesus' spirit, he's afraid. He's terrified. Why would Jesus be afraid? Why would Jesus be terrified? Because Jesus knows in order for him to disrupt Lazarus' funeral, he will have to have his own. Jesus knows that in order for him to truly be the resurrection and the life, he will have to face his own death. Jesus will have to deal with sin and death. And the way that he will do that is he will take on the wrath of God for this sin-cursed world, and it terrifies him. Martin Luther said, no one feared death as much as Jesus. Donald MacLeod, one of my favorite Scottish theologians, put it like this. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not for their sake he faced death without fear, but that he faced it for their sake terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. St. Ambrose once said, He who weeps causes all tears to finally cease. Jesus weeps with the sorrowful to display how he's going to rescue this world and put it to right. We have a God so committed to ending, ending our suffering and sorrow and grief and tears and death that he would come into this world and face it head on himself. Jesus walks into the sorrow and he weeps with the sorrowful. So what do we do with this? Let me close with this. One of my favorite hymns over the last couple of years has been Sandra McCracken's hymn, We Will Feast. Um, some of you may be familiar with it. I'm not going to sing it for you. Maybe in the new heavens and the new earth I'll have a voice like hers. But here's how the chorus goes. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored, for he has done great things we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Verses 43 and 44, Jesus cries out again, 
with a loud voice and says, Lazarus, come out. And when he comes out, he commands them to unbind him and let him go. And that is a foretaste of what is to come for all those who put their trust in Jesus. As one writer said, John here is giving us a picture, or Jesus is actually giving us like a picture of rewinding the future into the present. I love that, rewinding the future into the present. The great hope for all those who believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life is knowing that this world is moving to a dramatic conclusion where Jesus will incorporate all of our tears, all of our sorrow and sadness and suffering and heartache into the final resurrection where all funerals will turn into feast, where we will sing with hearts restored, He has done great things, we will say together. And we will feast and weep no more. And here's the reality. Some of you will live in this world with deep wounds that will not fully heal until the life to come. But the great hope, the great assurance for the Christian, for the one who believes in the resurrected Christ, is that there is a day coming. There is a day coming where we will weep no more, where all the saints together, as we are embraced in the Father's lap, as he wipes away all of our tears, we will be able to say, now this is how it's supposed to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I know there are hearts in here that are deeply troubled greatly moved because of the broken, cursed world that we inhabit, where sin is real, where tears are real, where heartache is real. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as, as you call us to trust you, as you call us to believe, that your Holy Spirit would come and write these eternal truths upon all of our hearts so that in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, when we walk in the midst of sorrow, we will know your truth, we will experience your love, and we will have wisdom to move forward and our hearts to believe the good news to rest in the assurance that you are the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in you, though he die, yet he shall live. So Lord Jesus, would you do that for us, we pray. All this in your name. Amen.